Welcome to Human Risk, a podcast dedicated to the understanding of human behaviour as a risk. Here's your host, Christian Hunt. Hello and welcome back to the Human Risk Podcast. Now, one of my aims with this show is to introduce you to ideas, stories and people that can help to inspire you to think differently about human risk. On this special episode, I'm going to introduce you to a fellow podcaster who produces content that I think you'll find interesting. Daniel Ross is the host of A Load of BS. No, that's not me being rude. It's the name of his show and newsletter. Like this podcast, A Load of BS interviews a wide range of people to try to get answers to the very simple question of why we do what we do and what can be done to influence that for good outcomes. I could just have pointed you to Daniel's show, but I thought I'd invite him into my virtual studio for a chat instead. Please enjoy my conversation with Daniel Ross on a load of BS. Daniel, welcome to the Human Risk Podcast. It is a great pleasure, Christian, to be here on a Monday morning. What better way to start the week? It is a fabulous privilege for me to have you here. And look, to kickstart us off, can you just tell my listeners a little bit about yourself? Oh, with great pleasure. I certainly will. Look, I started my career in the world of marketing communications, actually. I saw I was working for a bunch of media agencies. I was planning advertising campaigns, working with big brands across Western Europe, like Procter & Gamble, Vodafone. I then took a break. I went to business school to learn about business in theory. And since which time, that's the last sort of decade plus, I've been in financial services in various guises. I worked for Barclays Bank uh, in wealth management. Funnily enough, actually, there was even then uh, a nascent behavioral science unit. Well, I'm not sure people really understood it all that well, but I was subsequent to that. I, I gave up on that after a couple of years. wasn't really my scene, bit too, bit too conservative uh, and straitjacketed there. The last bastion of real ultimate financial services conservatism in wealth management, I think. And some interesting uh, BS going on there as well, which we, which we could come to, which I think is a little, a little amusing. I was an early employee in an equity crowdfunding startup. So I started moving towards more entrepreneurial ventures. I was interested in fintech. This was about 2013, interesting times, certainly in the UK, to be involved in emerging financial technology ventures. More recently, uh, I ran the innovation and corporate venture capital program for a large international portfolio of insurance and hospitality businesses uh, owned by a South African family. And now, bringing it up to the present moment, uh, I do a bunch of things, actually, but I advise corporations, often actually, again, uh, in the insurance uh, industry, and there's certainly, um, as we were just talking about, quite a lot of BS potential um, in insurance, which is quite interesting. But I advise corporations typically on innovation strategy. I run digital transformation programs. I'm working with insurtechs. I actually do a little angel investing on the side. And of course, then uh, just sort of preempting where we might go with this, then there's a load of BS, uh, which is the podcast and or company newsletter which I publish, which has become an increasingly uh, big part of my life in, in the last year. So I'm devoting plenty of time uh, talking BS, excuse the, en- the endless childish uh, humor there of uh, the acronym, which of course uh, gives me uh, lim- lim- limitless, limitless pleasure, part of the fun. Uh, and really as was at its heart, and we'll get onto this in more detail, I suspect, but with that, I'm really just trying to understand and explain why on earth we do the things that we do and to do so by kind of telling real human stories. That's what's really important to me, actually. It's not about presenting sort of academic research and science for its own sake. I'm interested in getting under the skin um, of human behavior to share our quirks and peculiarities to try and disentangle what on earth is driving us, why we, how and why we make decisions, how we cope in a world of uh, impossible uncertainty. 
Wow. So much to unpick. But I, I want to I sort of take you back and just go, what, what, was your, what was your first sort of interest in behavioral science? Was there, was there a point where you just suddenly went, this is, this is a thing? Or have you always been curious about people? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, firstly, to say that, you know, for many years, I'd had this urge to write, I had this urge to publish something. What was it going to be about? Um, but I certainly felt that within the relatively tight confines of my corporate life, I sort of sought greater creative expression. And then, of course, one of the challenges for any new publisher, podcast maker, writer is, you know, finding one's voice. You know, what, 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 what's the real value one has to add on any particular uh, subject? And actually, funnily enough, I wrote this blog piece on this sort of subject last Christmas, which was titled 2021, My Year of uh, Total BS, in which I was describing the pro trying to describe the process of finding one's niche, one's authentic voice, and the, all the sort of experimentation, iteration, sense of play, actually, which is required to find this point of unselfconscious production. In terms of the BS subject matter itself, it was a subject that I'd always had a great interest in. I'd followed it. I'd read a lot of the sort of predominant uh, literature. Uh, but it's actually going beyond that. It's really because my broader interests, I think, have always leaned towards stories in which human behavior, in all its oddity, in all its complexity, has been very, very front and center. So I think about the authors, the comedians, the filmmakers I like. They all incorporate some of life's great eccentricity. And so um, actually, I started uh, the process doing interviews which were much broader in scope than BS. And then I actually then sort of zeroed in. And actually, for me, despite a lot of, sort of serious application of it and, and the consequences of it, you know, much of the time for me, what I love about it, it's just really fun, is it not? Finding out uh, about the less obvious, unusual at times, crazy behaviors that people have. I mean, just if I think about just going back to sort of the writers, the filmmakers, comedians, I like, I think, you know, the writers like you know, Graham Greene, Somerset Maugham, Karlovy Knausgaard, Woody Allen, Larry David, P.G. Woodhouse, William Boyd. I mean, all to greater or lesser extents are telling real human stories. And in contrast to that, I've been very, I've had, always had very little interest in, as I said, science fiction uh, as a contrast. What's always interested me is kind of cl is, is close observation. I guess. Uh, so many things to, to pick up there. I mean, the, the, the first one that really struck me was when, when you were talking about finding your voice and creativity. And what I think is really interesting is when we think about corporate environments, there are so many constraints on people. And so on the one, this plays into my whole sort of human risk and then, and then the flip side being human reward, right? Which is so people pose a risk, but also we want to get the best out of them. There's a reason that we hire people. And in the 21st century, I find it fascinating because we hire people to do things that the machines can't. Because if the machine could do it, it would be much better to give it to the machine. So that is things like nuance, judgment, emotional intelligence, empathy, all those sorts of things. And the bit I find fascinating is the way you were talking, I just had visions of you sitting there with like a PowerPoint template or a memo to, that is intentionally designed to constrain messaging in, in, a, in a particular format that they want it in. And I can understand the logic for that, which is you want, you know, you need control. We don't want people going rogue. We don't want the, but actually, if we're hiring people, I totally understand your frustration. Sort of sitting there, this PowerPoint template, as an example, doesn't let me do what I want to do, right? I have to put it in these formats, use these fonts. And there's a logic to that, but it's also, I think, hugely restrictive. So I love this idea of lots of people, and I was definitely one of them, who's sitting in, in corporate machines where they're, 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 the very things in a way they've been hired to do are being constrained in many cases by understandable and yet from a getting the best out of people, massively limiting factors. And so this vision of you going, I need to find my voice, I think is really interesting. And I hope resonates with quite a few people sitting in that environment because you know, it is 
it, it's un- as I say, it's understandable why companies do that, but I think it's missing a massive trick nowadays. Well, I, 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 I fully agree. And of course, much of corporate life is about creating borders, parameters, and constraints. And it brings up the question, of course, of creativity and frankly, our, our obsession with machines, with AI, with computer intelligence. And of course, there's a balance. There's value in in, in process and there's value um, in creating a sort of a sense of control. There was an interesting article in Wired that I, I read just this morning, uh, brushing my teeth, which was this kind of a love note, if you like, to kind of harking back to a time of greater creativity and accepting all our our foibles, our weaknesses, and our irrationalities for what they are, and to take advantage of that more, and to kind of pull back a little on our obsession to automate and to uh, and 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 to control everything. And I think there's sort of great risk in that. Of course, it's clear um, that AI has its benefits in terms of what it can automate. But as you touch on, it doesn't understand nuance, it doesn't understand context, and it doesn't understand psychology. And that's why, of course, the hybrid model uh, is, 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 is important. And particularly in a world where AI models are increasingly hungry for data. And of course, data, data, data is a risky thing. Uh, data is not always accurate. And the more we search for it, uh, the, more, the more we want it in greater volume. Uh, I think the greater risks there are in feeding garbage in and, uh, and, get, and getting garbage out. So I think, I think there's this balance. But certainly for me, if I think about myself in terms of the work environments that I thrive in or sort of tried to thrive in when I, when I was younger, certainly working in towers in Canary Wharf was not for me. Funnily enough, just a quick uh, little story. I remember when I first started at, uh, at Barclays and there was a health and safety briefing on the sort of 77th floor or whatever it was <laughs> of uh, Canary Wharf Tower uh, Z. And uh, the person leading the uh, session said, you know, of course, the great thing uh, about this building is, is, as you'll notice as you go up and down the flights, is that every floor looks exactly the same. And uh, that was supposed to be an advantage. And I remember my heart sinking, thinking, what on earth am I doing here? Because that sort of sense of... Uh, monotony already was uh, eating me up inside. <laughs> just, I love that, right? This is amazing. Every single floor is identical, right? Well, yeah. that's not helpful from a navigational perspective. Well, it's not. If you've ever worked in a bank, of course, uh, you'll know that you have those circular floors where you have the photocopier, the kitchenette, the toilet, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the arsehole boss in his glass-fronted uh, uh, cabinet. The bit I found funny was the only, the only reason you'd know you were on the wrong floor in many cases because your security pass didn't work. There was no right, you've been there. You know all this exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So I love that idea of kind of bringing out finding finding voice and sort of just just exploring things. And and then this this idea of literature being about people. I mean, I I did a literature degree, and and I've realised that for me that was a proxy for behavioural science. I think ultimately, had there been behavioural science available, I probably would have gone down that that route. And I realised that you know to your point. We tend not to write books, or at least at least not sort of fiction about inanimate objects. It gets a bit dull. We don't, you know, we tend to write it about humans, why they do things, and it's all exploration. What you know, what what's going on here, and how will this finish? And what are these people? And why did they do that? Why did they not do that? that and that drives our interest in, in in fiction. So I think this is a this is a really interesting point for me. A lot of the time that I, I look at behavioral science, you're right. It's making sense of the world that's around us. And so what attracts me to drama, for example, is things I will recognize. And so I'm, I'm with you. I find stuff that's too far. I can, I can accept things that are set in different worlds that I can recognize because of that human component. But put me in an environment where it gets a bit too weird and I don't have that hook in on and something I recognize. It gets a bit more difficult. So I think that's a really interesting point. And I think we can learn a lot from kind of literary studies and, and, and escaping that, which doesn't necessarily sit nicely with the sort of science of 
Well, exactly. I mean, funnily enough, someone we both know quite well, Paul Craven, I mean, his definition of behavioral science is one that I always go back to because I struggle to find ones which are pithier or more succinct. And it's he says, you know, what is it all about? It's about how real people make real decisions in the real world. And so then what does that mean for me? And I'm not by any, I'm by no means the first person to say this, but I'm, tr- I want to also deconstruct, you know, the traditional economic models and theories, which are all about, you know, optimization, uh, opportunity, cost assessment, uh, trust, cooperation, market supply, demand, all this stuff, by the way, which was drummed into me during economics classes at business school. And which of course don't at all really explain how much of the real world works, how we behave, and generally how we just muddle through and cope in this world of terrible uncertainty. One thing that just occurs to me when I think about certainty, uncertainty, talked about this in my podcast actually with another of our mutual friends, uh, Gerald Ashley, who talks about our human desire to model everything, to assign risk probabilities to everything. I think there's there's one strand which I could pick up, which comes up in almost all my conversations. It's this, it's it's somehow coping with this, this, this the question of certainty or rather lack of certainty, total uncertainty, randomness um, uh, in our everyday lives. And some, there's something about behavioral science, which is trying to give us the tools to cope and manage in a world of uncertainty, uh, in a world in which we are ever increasingly anxious and unsure about how things work. I mean, you can take that into all spheres. I had a conversation on the my pod with Jeff Chrysler uh, last week. Jeff uh, is the global MD of BS. There's a good job title for you. Uh, at JP Morgan Chase. He wrote Small Change Money Mishaps and How to Avoid Them with Dan Ariely, which is all about how you spend, save, uh, and invest money and all the kind of flawed emotional decision-making which goes around that. You know, I've talked. I've had conversations with a ritual expert. That's fascinating, by the way. Why do we conduct rituals from the uh, low intensity, repetitive ones to the extreme, painful ones? But you know, between those extremes, there's something very common there, which is about somehow coping in an uncertain world. I find that a very fascinating idea, and I really like that because we all crave this certainty. So we like to, you know, good, that that classic example of why do we have indicator boards at bus stops and on, on for train stations. Well, it's so that you know when the train is coming, it reassures you you're in the right place. It's providing certainty in a world where if we don't have that, we start to kind of create our own narratives and we worry about things and we want to know. And so, so I, we, we recognize that as a, as a human dynamic. And yet many of the constructs around which society is built have a degree of certainty to them or purport to have a degree of certainty, which, which just we know is unrealistic. And so I, whether you look at advertising and we kind of know that things we're being told you know, they can't lie, but on the other hand, there are misrepresentations. Things look more perfect than they actually are. People look more perfect than they actually are. We have rules and regulations that are sort of designed to codify, to make it simple to know how to behave. And yet there are going to be circumstances under which those rules make no sense whatsoever. We'll have bureaucrats requiring things that are idiotic because that's what the rules say. And so I, I really like that tension between our desire for the certainty but also our recognition that things are always a bit more complicated. And actually, the more we cleave certainty, the less the less opportunity for serendipity, but also the less realistic it is. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I'm not sure also whether a lot of our kind of coping mechanisms, the degree to which they're conscious or unconscious, I'm not sure how able most people would be to be able to somehow articulate this sort of sense of uncertainty in that, what they're actually doing. Let's go back to money. You know, why is it? How 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 do we value things? Why are people spending in such a way? Why is it that people uh, spend three pounds on a latte and then at the same time compare grocery prices to save 
10p. Why are people doing all this thing? I'm not sure that they necessarily tie it back to any great logic, apart from that we're all flawed, uh, emotional, odd, 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 odd creatures. So your curiosity in this in this space led you to to go with the podcast, and I'm guessing a little bit like my I, I kind of went through the I will have a podcast. And I'd, I'd always wanted to be in radio. And I kind of worked out what it was as I was doing it and where where I would go and who who I would want to invite. And you learn as you go. And so what, what was your thinking when you started and how has that evolved in terms of the format and the guests that you have? I mean, one, I've always wanted to keep it uh, very broad. So if I go back uh, to the objectives uh, of, of, of the pod, well, look, it's about education. It's about entertainment. Uh, it's about building a community. It's about having engagement. And as I said earlier, I'm not interested in just sort of presenting academia for its own sake. If you look at my guests, you'll see a huge range uh, of different types of guests, some who obviously come from the uh, the kind of great canon uh, of, of BS writing. But there are also plenty of people uh, who have no professional BS qualifications, but nevertheless have something profound and interesting and unique to say about the human condition. So I've always been interested in breadth. I mean, for example, I'm going to be t- I'm talking to Martin Sorrell later this week. I'm talking to Rory Bremner, uh, you know, political satirist. Uh, I'm going to be talking to Martin about negotiation and influence and the art of doing the deal. So I think, you know, there's always something, uh, with, with, not with everyone, but I'm looking for something which is doing a little, something a little less usual, getting under the fabric and under the skin um, of personal motivation, of influence, of what of, of what actually kind of drove these people to do and achieve uh, what they did. So if you look at the kind of the, the backgrounds of the people that I've talked to, they go from politics, sport, uh, evolutionary biology, um, finance, advertising, wine and alcohol, uh, parenthood mental well-being and i'm deliberately broad in that because i want to open i want to open the subject up as much as i can and i'm conscious by the way that at times i'm i'm stretching a point a bit but um look we're, we are always talking we're always talking some bs somewhere or other i mean actually one of the fascinating ones that i did sorry just popped into my mind had a conversation with times journalist david aronovich about conspiracy theories um, I mean, David is by no means a BS expert, but of course, the behavioral science around conspiracy theories is fascinating. You know, who are the types of people who uh, who start uh, and promote conspiracy theories? And what is it about conspiracy theories that is so attractive? All those sorts of questions get to the heart, I think, of you know, understanding why, why we behave the way we do. I love the fact that it's, let's pull some people some interesting things to say who don't, who aren't necessarily qualified in the field. And it's something I've done, you know, I've had a few people that I've approached who I think would be brilliant, who've gone, I don't feel qualified to come on. And it's almost actually, in many cases, the people that, that sort of say, well, I, I haven't really got anything to say on that, who probably have a, t- I mean, not everybody, clearly there are some people that have limited, but, but some of the people have sort of felt a little bit, they've gone, you know, I'll stay in my lane. And I'm like, no, 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 your lane is, because actually what you're going to talk about, your experiences. I'm not necessarily expecting you to be able to decode them. Part of the joy is you come and tell me, talk about what you've done, and we can together work out, well, what do we think is going on here and how might that inform people? And so for me, I, I love that, that sort of freewheeling approach that you, that you have, which chimes very much with, with, what, with what I do here, which is almost, we start point, nothing is off limits, and we work out, you know, clearly it has to have some sort of resonance to the show. And and I think your point around, it's got to be interesting. There is sometimes an inverse right. relationship between how sort of superficially prepared and polished 
uh, someone may be and how interesting they are. I say that obviously with some great interest because what I'm in- indicating here, of course, is that my lack of uh, my lack of polish obviously means that I'm inc- I'm far more interesting than uh, extraordinarily, extraordinarily interesting, interesting uh, because I'm extremely ill prepared. No, but I mean, for example, I mean, I've been doing a bit of a mini series on psychology of sport, which is a personal interest. So uh, I've inter- I've interviewed Gary Lineker, who, for those who don't know, is a very well-known ex-professional international football star of great uh, reputation and achievement, who's now one of BBC's top paid uh, sports presenters on Match of the Day, which is sort of Britain's uh, most popular football highlights show. And, you know, he's not a, of course, he is not a psychologist, but isn't it fascinating to talk to someone who's taken a penalty in the heat of a World Cup semi-final against the Germans and just to talk to that person and say, what does it feel like? What's going through your mind? And to ask questions around, you know, what does it take to be uh, a successful athlete at the very top level for a long period of time? You know, how do you how do you understand the need to be selfish uh, against the team, against the against the uh, necessity for kind of team balance uh, and, and the collective. How do you think about questions of ritual and superstition? Uh, I mean, you know, what makes successful team dynamic? All those sorts of questions. I did another one with bro- an, uh, another uh, football broadcaster called Kiem Balague, who specialises. Uh, in Spanish football, for those who follow European football, will be familiar with Guillaume. But Guillaume has also written a number of really interesting biographies of some of the great icons of football, like Pep Guardiola and Diego Maradona, his most recent book, and ask questions around, you know, what has made these guys icons of football in their very different ways? How do they create auras around themselves? How is it and why is it that they became successful in their different ways? What drives them? And why is it that they are both in their own way, so fragile and vulnerable at the same time. I find all that sort of stuff uh, fascinating. And by the way, rather cynically, you know, if you go onto Spotify or Apple or any other platform, there are bucket loads of interviews with all the usual characters. I don't think there are that many uh, interviewing uh, footballers uh, or journalists uh, about the subject. So I'm, I sort of like the idea of taking the, the, the less trodden path, if you like, and seeing if I can eke out a BS angle. And you do, right, very successfully, because I think it's that for me, this is all about asking questions that let people talk. And one of the things I love about your format, and, and I think plays into my, is sort of, I couldn't predict necessarily exactly what questions you're going to ask on a show. And that's the joy of it, because I come, I come and listen, and I sort of think, actually, you're you're going to take the conversation in a direction that I wouldn't necessarily have taken in, and that's not to say that yours is better than mine. It's just interesting, right? And it's a different perspective on things. And I love coming away from it and sort of going, "Oh, that's an interesting angle." Because I think you know one of the, one of the things that's fascinating about it is sort of as we try and unpick what drives our behaviour. There's the usual thing about you know why am I actually doing this? Why do I think I'm actually doing this? And what do other people think that I'm doing? And so we have these these different lenses. And for me, the kinds of discussions with with people are unpicking things they've been through sort of providing them with a secondary lens through which to look at it. I think it's fascinating and I think is is a really useful way of us thinking not just about what they've done, but also our own experiences and the fact that, you know, not everything is as it seems. Yeah, I mean, the, the question again, I'm just sort of thinking as, you, as you're talking about the sorts of subject matter. I mean, the conversation I had with uh, Dimitris Sigalatas, uh, which I'm going to be publishing this week, all being well, which is on the subject of rituals. Of course, rituals is something that is common to all of us um, because we all celebrate our birthdays. Uh, a lot of us go to uh, sports games and experience the very arousing collective rituals that going to sports games entail. It's sort of interesting when you kind of when you think about the really extreme rituals, which 
I mean, sometimes it can be sort of rather entertaining and perverse, although one, one has to be careful not to sort of trivialize these things because for many people, they're very serious things. But to try, I suppose, and make a connection about what is it that I have in common as someone who has no interest in sticking metal rods through my cheeks or doing or any other kind of body piercing and attaching weight to it and dragging it around town uh, and enduring that kind of level of, of annual suffering. So it's almost, let, take that extreme and then what is the point of commonality there with someone like myself sitting in north in northwest London, uh, you know, who once had a body piercing but put an earring through his ear age 16 and had it yanked out by his father. That's about as much <laughs> of an extreme ritual uh, that I have ever um, ex- ex- experienced. But it's not only interesting I'm going, going to the extremes of society to hear how people, I mean, for example, I did a, I was riffing in left, left and right here, but did a really fascinating podcast on evolutionary taboos uh, with Dr. Jesse Bering uh, at the University of Otago in New Zealand, who is a uh, experimental psychologist with a specialism in these sort of in these sorts of taboos, fetishes, perversions, uh, suicide, afterlife, all these sorts of areas which are rather difficult to talk about, which often cross this this sort of grey boundary between normality uh, and morality. Very in, in, interesting debate. Um, so on, on, the, on, the, on the question then of taboos, you know, you start having a bit of a laugh because you're sort of talking about these people called the climacophiliacs, if I'm pronouncing this. And these are people who can only have orgasm by tumbling down a flight of stairs. You know, and of course, it does pose fascinating questions about the logistics. Uh, of How t- would you t- find t- that out in the first place? Is the bit I well, exactly. I mean, I, you, do you sort of get, you, you start the white paper as you, as you sit at the bottom of the, at the bottom of the stairs? I'm not quite sure how you report it. Apparently, I think it's very, very niche, as you might, as you might imagine. I think it's only one man in Pakistan. Uh, who has sort of reported it? I don't know if it's self-reported or whether, and also all sorts of questions around how it gets reported. But more, more, more op- obviously, perhaps how on earth uh, it actually happens. Maybe that's we we we, we mustn't digress too much. And, but of course, it's very easy to start sort of trivialising and sort of laughing at these things. But of course, it's also bloody fascinating, isn't it? I mean, we are so we're so diverse and odd that it, 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 you know it it certainly makes all sorts. And you know, we on that. I mentioned all the body piercing. I was referring to um, it's a particular festival carried out by the Tamils uh, in different countries in the world, and where Demetrius has researched it uh, is in Mauritius. No bad place to carry out research with a with a group called which it's it's called the Typosim Kavadi Festival. I mean, it's quite unbelievable uh, what they go through. But what's fascinating is the sense of belonging and community and social interaction that it engenders. It's also, of course, interesting that from a layman's point of view, if you ask someone why on earth you actually carry out a ritual, there's very little analysis to it, which always makes one sort of hold back from overimposing uh, sort of scientific uh, layers on top of things. If you ask most people why they do things, it's just because I do and because my father did and his father did. And uh, it's uh, there's something kind of strong in the repetition and tradition and family connection that it that it provides. And it's almost the stuff that we can least justify that has the strongest connection. So whether that's support for a football team or religion, it's just there. And I find you know I think that's a really good example of something where what I, I guess you and I are both trying to do is to sort of unpick these things and go, well, what can we learn from that? And sure, we're not participating. You know, you don't have to be a football fan to recognize that it has a hold on people. You don't have to be religious to recognize that. We, we can all recognize those dynamics going on. And it's, I think it's fascinating just to sort of go, well, let's, let's just stop a second. And it's almost like, as you're talking about these things, it's almost like freeze framing going, let's just take a look at what's happening here. And without wishing to give either of us the status of a David Attenborough, 
there is a little bit of that, which is just let's just explore some stuff and see what can come out. And I think it's I, for me, what's really interesting is that, that we're allowed to do this. We don't have the academic rigor behind the questions that we're asking and we're not conducting experiments, but we're just probing a little bit to see what we can learn. And that seems to produce some interesting insights. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. I think, you know, we're, we're touching on areas of things which cannot be explained. So whether it's religion, superstition, cults, conspiracies, uh, all sorts of different rituals uh, and taboos, these are often things which lie in our self-conscious, which are, of course, accentuated by societal norms and those around us who bring who bring them out of us. And of course, again, go back to this issue, which we talked about at the beginning, which is about, you know, their, their, their coping strategies as well. OK, it's about imposing some sense of control control in a world of craziness and if your sense of control is about an a ritual which you do year after year then it is it is creating some kind of framework in what is otherwise um a rather random uh anxi anxiety ridden um uh ex 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 existence and so you know that's why you know why why do people uh carry out uh, or follow conspiracy theories because in some ways uh, they allow you to hold a narrative which other people can cannot really deny because, in a sense, they are all they're rubbish, uh, they're nonsense. Um, and also, of course, we live in a world of, uh, of increased disinformation, so you can sort of say what you like anyway. Um, and, of course, so much of our discourse anyway is extremely polarized. Uh, you know, you can say any sorts of thing and, and, you, and you can promote it and you can find uh, supporters of that. But, of course, conspiracy theories tend to be rather more thrilling, exciting and attractive uh, than the real world. And uh, so it's all about kind of finding the narrative that suits you, religion similarly, or go back to superstition uh, and sport. I mean, there's a kind of a fine line, I think, between what is a superstition, what is a cult, what is a conspiracy, and and and, uh, and, and so on. But if you talked again to Gary Lineker about superstitions, he had one where if he was on a, uh, a positive scoring spree, I think well, either he would or wouldn't. I think it was he wouldn't then cut <laughs> his hair. You better get that so right, he, right? It's one of those ones where I know, but we don't yeah, need exactly. to remember it, but he did. Right. Yeah, he needed to remember it. God, do I need to get the scissors out or not? What the hell's going on? You know, there are panic stations. Um, you know, cricket is a notoriously uh, uh, superstitious. You know, you don't move uh, if a batsman is on 99 on the balcony or is, or if you're trying to save the game or you're not allowed to go to the loo or you only sort of you put on your left pad before your right pad. Um, but of course, by the way, there's something interesting here, which is not it's not it's not just sort of Looney Tunes. I mean, there is something called, you know, the, the expectation effect, which is that, you know, you can create, you know, you can create almost like sort of placebo effect uh, outcomes uh you know you can engineer the experience by with the right level of anticipation uh, with the right, right level of preparation in the same way that you know if you go to a good restaurant and you have a you'll be given a bottle of wine by a sommelier who describes the wine recommends the wine opens it pours it uh, swells it around and puts its nose in it uh, for you uh, that wine's going to just taste better than if you uh pour it uh, into a mug uh, and sip it uh, in front of in front of the TV at home, so you're sort of creating expectations. You are engineering uh, the outcome, and the mind uh, is very flexible in that way. As you talk around these things, I mean, one, one thing that struck me, which I, which I do want to mention, is, is you know you talk about rituals and sort of looking for we, we we look for things to sort of mark actually what would otherwise be a pretty dull existence if we didn't have these things. And it struck me, I, I don't know what made me think of it, but that, that, that song, "I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day." Bad analysis, right? Terrible analysis, because if it was, it wouldn't be interesting or exciting. And I think there's, there's lots of things there where we, you know, the, the power of some of these things isn't necessarily recognized until we stop and look and say to ourselves, actually, what is going on here? Oh, that's working quite well. And 
one of the things I found, and I'm sure you've got this, is you, you start to spend your life wandering around with, a, with a, a pair of glasses on or lenses on where you're looking for the stuff all the time. And I feel a little bit like apologies to people who haven't seen the movie, The Kid in the Sixth Sense, in that I'm spotting stuff everywhere. Now, I'm sure I'm spotting stuff that isn't there, but I'm also just going, oh, that's really interesting the way they did that. And I keep getting into trouble. Like I'll take pictures in supermarkets of something, you know, display or a sign and people kind of go, what are you doing? Why are you taking pictures? Because it looks amazing. But there is this, it, it, it's very exciting. It's also quite debilitating to be wandering around the whole time, analyzing what's going on and thinking about, well, how is this playing? What is this doing to me? And sometimes I, I don't know about you, but I, I struggle sometimes to switch it off. Yeah. I'll give you, I'll give you an example of that, actually. I mean, it's a bit sort of bizarre. I, my, my sister-in-law is actually selling her, her flat and she, we were having a WhatsApp conversation. She was asking, you know, should I remove more of my personal photographs of, you know, before I, before I have viewings? And of course I started going into BS mode saying, well, of course, definitively you shouldn't because, you know, lived in properties uh, allow the viewer to fantasize about living there. You know, of course it requires far more effort and imagination to transport yourself with. I mean, that's sort of fairly intuitive, but of course, then we start going on to the question of, um, you know, if you the, the, the fantasy of a lived in property encourages the sense of virtual ownership, uh, you know, attachment to products uh, that we feel without buying them completely. Of course, it's dangerous if you're a buyer. Uh, wonderful uh, if you're if you're the seller, uh, and 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 all, and all this kind of thing. So we do start going down a rather slippery steps. There's a, something you said which uh, about you know uh, rituals, and it, it's something about punctuating our year uh with, with 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 novelty whether that's going on holiday or celebrating our birthday and of course if you do them too frequently uh they lose their novelty value but it, it goes back to a debate about the sort of the balance in one's life between being sort of very rational about how one spends one's time and one's money versus sort of indulgence uh, and splurging as well i think i feel that like there was a sort of parallel there which is something that i've thought about because if you read books about if you read sort of jeff and dan Ariely's book about money and you know how you how you spend it of course a lot of it is about recognizing that we're flawed emotional characters and that there's no point trying to sort of fundamentally change human beings because you know that's what evolution does more 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 slowly but that it's about creating awareness uh for for for, for our unconscious decision making biases and giving kind of tips and tactics about how to be a, a little more organized but at the same time it's you know, there there are there there should be occasions in life Hopefully, we're within most people's means. We're a bit of indulgence. We're a bit of irrationality. We're buying that £100 or £50 bottle of wine ahead of the £8 bottle of wine. is just bloody fun for the hell of it. And you don't have to be a satisficer all your life. Sometimes you can just splurge and be a maximizer and know and enjoy that you're wasting money. Uh, but there's just a sort of a pleasure uh, in, in, in the experience of it. And of course, by the way, the way that you create an experience has a huge impact on terms of the, the outcome of it. The very act of overindulging or buying an expensive bottle of wine, despite that there's very little return on most wine beyond about 30 quid, just sets you up for an enjoyable experience. And, you know, you're just going to enjoy it that bit more. And I love this this idea of, of indulging the irrational, because I think as we look at lots of things that we've, we've clocked over COVID and, and, and more generally, you know, things that are efficient, things that are sensible are often actually vulnerable, they are dull, they don't get the best out of us. So when I look at my world, I kind of think the you know, natural tendency is let's let the account you know we'll let the accountants loose on things, get the, get things for the lowest possible price. Let's do things that are very let's not waste a moment. Let's do it as quickly as possible. And yet actually a lot of the things that have gone wrong and that we've seen under COVID week you know, supply just in time supply chains fail very, very easily when something can't get there just in time because it's all predicated on that working out. Equally, 
um, you know, having a little bit of time doing nothing, going for a walk. I mean, if you said that, in, and I love it, you know, banking is a really good example. If you went, I'm going to go, and walk, walking might just about now be acceptable with a little bit of mental health angle, but they wouldn't, they'd be thinking about, okay, we'll give him a few, get some fresh air. And people think he's, going, he's, off to, he's off to have a cigarette or something. It'll be some kind of cover story for it. But I think there's a lot to be said for just exploring things. And what I think is fascinating about the way you talk about the subject and the way I do is that in doing our research, you know, you will watch random things, read random books, think about stuff, get sucked into Wikipedia rabbit holes. And that can sometimes be a massive waste of time, right? No question about it. And I've spent hours looking at stuff that's gone nowhere, or at least I don't consciously think has gone somewhere. I'd like to believe that it's somehow added to the sum total of my life. But there's other things where you just randomly wander off a, a little bit sort of trying. And I like to think of it as sort of Heston Blumenthal, who's this, this for people that know, is this, this amazing chef who's closer to a scientist than a, than, than a chef who makes, just does crazy things with dishes and has this incredible restaurant. I, for me, that, that's quite joyous. I mean, it's really frustrating when nothing comes, but you can get some incredible things just by doing things that you shouldn't do the counter. You know, this is sort of Rory Sutherland territory. Do the, the counterintuitive stuff try the things that might seem like a complete waste of time and see what happens. And I think there's a joy when you explore behavioral science because suddenly you, you can, and this is dangerous, right? But you can justify why one might do that. Yeah, I think, look, uh, we definitely live in a world of uh, sort of fetishizing productivity and, you know, being kind of super organized and managing one's time. Of course, one of the things that people have said is the great benefit of lockdown is that we've translated uh, the one hour meeting into a half hour meeting on, on Zoom whichever platform you use there's some sort of truth in that uh but on the other hand of course you end up filling your day with endless uh endless meetings one of the things talking about personal motivation about what i'm doing i think what we're what we're both trying to do is standing back from the conversations i have is allowing all that to sort of percolate allowing myself some more introspection allowing myself to question myself to gain greater understanding about our existence to learn so I'm trying to avoid sounding pompous and pretentious with this, but I mean it in a, in a very kind of low caps way, but to try and sort of learn, I suppose, how to lead a richer, calmer, more collaborative life. And by the way, your point about taking time out, whether it's to sort of smoke a cigarette, but or go, go for a walk or whatever it is that you want to break the routine with. You know, if you look back at all the great people, achievers, uh, characters of the last hundred plus years, at least in sort of modern, modern memory, whether it's Churchill to great writers and, you know, the people, you know, uh, Crick and Newton, who Crick and what was the guy who uh, discovered DNA? Uh, my memory's uh, not serving. Anyway, uh, whether it's poets, sci scientists, military leaders, they all uh, broke up their day uh, between uh, rest uh, and had rest and play throughout their day. In fact, I think Churchill had... Um, a big rest in the afternoon, probably had a bottle of champagne and a cigar and then started his second working day at about 5 or 6 p.m. I wouldn't necessarily advocate that, but um, we are sort of obsessed and, and, and compartmentalized. I'm in a very sort of strict nine to five. There's no great uh, uh, benefit to that. We, we, fe we fetishize uh, busyness, right? If someone says, how are you? You have to sort of say busy. Part of that is just a social tick. How are you? I'm fine. I mean, no one's going to say, look, unless you're dying, uh, don't ask me. <laughs> uh, um, uh, or don't, don't, you know, don't expect to. But, uh, you know, I think there's an enormous amount to be said for, let's say, certainly allowing the last couple of years to uh, uh, engender in, in great, greater flexibility 
uh, and uh, and reflection in, in the way we lead our lives. The other thing I think is is interesting as we as we look at the the book of work, if you like, or the, the people that you've interviewed and the people I've interviewed, is that we often kind of we like to think that the circumstances we're in it's very unique. And I, I go and work with clients, and I get sort of you know we, we have a very unique business model. And of course they're right, right? I don't want to. Yeah, they they do. There are unique features, but there are so many things that have a sort of cross human. Uh, relevance. And so, you know, I, my, my, my favorite one on, on, on my show is I interviewed a sexologist to talk about, uh, she, was, so she, was, she was fascinated about mask wearing and what you could learn from getting people to wear condoms. I'll put a link to this episode in the, in the, in the show notes, as with all the episodes, uh, the, all the things we talk about in there. Great. Um, but, you know, she was talking, there was a linkage between how do we get people to wear masks and how do people get people to wear condoms for HIV. And there's, so it was just a fascinating conversation with her because she'd intuitively understood some things that were relevant in a completely different context. And as I listened to some of the things, it's, you know, it, it struck me that what, what we're both trying to do is going a stage further than, than what often happens, which is you know, companies sort of go, right, we need to get someone in on leadership. Let's get some sports person in. And very often it's stroking the egos of the senior, you know, the senior person. They're a fan of X, so let's get their hero in so they can meet them and have a photograph and get the shirt signed, all that stuff. But, but, it, but you, know, you, you, sort of, you hear these speeches of sort of, you know, sportsmen talking about leadership. And it's fine as far as it goes, but it's not particularly actionable. And what I think is really interesting here is that we're going a little bit further than that. And we're saying, yes, actually, there are some insights to be had here, but let's not pretend that the office is a battlefield or a sports ground. It's not about that. It's about the micro-human decision-making and the influences on that decision-making that, that we can learn from. And I think this, this sort of take something from context A and deploy it in context B is massively underestimated precisely because we have lots of reasons why we don't think that's a good idea. And so as you're unpicking these stories, you know, there's something that will resonate for people, I think, in their day-to-day -day existence, even if they've, as you, to your point, even if you've never experienced it for yourself. No, I think that think that's so true. I mean, I'm just trying to think of specific examples, but the, what the principle of uh, crossover learning, transferable I ideas, um, that sort of cross-fertilization, if you like, of taking one, one thing from one uh, domain and crossing it into another I mean, that's real creativity. Uh, and the more interviews I do, the more fields I cover, whether it's talking about, you know, finance and banking uh, to motherhood, to rituals, to conspiracy theories, to advertising or to booze. Um, I'm learning. I'm learning all the time. And you start to sort of see all this crossover. And of course, these sort of commonalities again of, you know, at, at heart, one's, sort of, one's witnessing the same sorts of uh, concerns, coping mechanisms, uh, nudges. Um, Time, time and again. Um, so you're, abs you're absolutely right. Talk about the podcast. Just talk about a little bit about the newsletter, which which goes with it, and obviously tells tells people that. But but it's a little bit more than sort of notification of another episode. No, that's right. Um, I mean, by the way. Um, my pods and, and newsletter are constant works in progress, so I am absolutely open to all uh, feedback and ideas about how to do it better. I mean, I was just spending uh, yesterday riffing on how I play around with the formats and create greater engagement, and actually a couple of friends were saying to me, well, the newsletter is rather too long. And I said, well, you know, sometimes there's value in long, in, in long form. But I also that's funny because I think that's strange because I think I, I've had lots of people say that. And, and if I take social media posts as an example, I get much more engagement from longer posts that shouldn't work. And mm. I think there's something – so I think that this is, that, that's a really interesting example. Of course, they, they have their views, and of course, that's what they think, and there will be people for whom they're long. On the other hand, there is potentially some value in not going with the classic logic of everything needs to be short, snappy yeah. – I know. So and, and so you can't make something that will please everybody. But I do think that's really interesting because when, whenever we, 
I find whenever I ask people, one, you get that there's a difference between you know actual sort of I can't remember the, the I always get these phrases wrong, but sort of described behavior and actual behavior. And then the second thing is actually sometimes if you it's the Henry Ford thing, right? If you if you all just give people what they think they want, you're never going to break out. You, you wouldn't have the iPhone, for example, because it didn't have a keyboard. And so I think there's something really interesting as you go through that creative process of saying, on the one hand, I do need to listen to what my audience is telling me, because if I go completely batshit the other way, I'm not going to get. On the other hand, if I don't push the limits, I'll never know. And that, I, that for me is the challenge. I don't know if you have that sort of challenge, but I always look yeah. at it and sort of think, I need to listen, but, but also sometimes not listen. Yeah, I'm tempted by maybe there's some reverse psychology. I should just like start every email saying, you don't know what you want. I don't want to hear from you. Suck it up or, 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 or bugger off in a rather sort of uh, obtuse uh, alternative uh, marketing strategy, which kind of takes something of the Steve Jobs uh, worldview and a more kind of old, uh, you know, command command and control. But I think, by the way, there's a very, maybe interesting correlation between those who sort of hark against uh, the long form, uh, therefore probably obsessed with sort of short-term gratification because in the sort of bite-sized content world and those who actually probably who don't put money away for retirement of course there is this um interesting piece of bs about you know programs to help people save for retirement properly um and you know the problem that we all have is that we're far too inclined uh we're tempted away to other more exciting things all the time we it's far easier for us to see what's right in front of us and then rather sort of visualize what the future looks like i wonder whether that's the case all these people who only want sort of they want one paragraph and then they then they move on it's a slightly sort of schizophrenic uh con- sort of mode of, a way of way of consuming things but i get i mean there's there's no great statistical significance in my research. I'm just weighing things up. But I mean, le- length length aside, uh, to go back to your to go back to your question, um, the the origin of the newsletter was uh, firstly just experimentation and fun because actually I'd started the whole project wanting to write and then I sort of shifted uh, inadvertently into doing pods. So I wanted to do some writing. Although when I do publish a pod, I tend to sort of probably overwrite a bit, kind of outlining what's going on and just some of my own thoughts, just because I sort of enjoy that. Although I suspect people may just jump to the pod. Um, as I do when I listen to other people's pods, I don't often start reading uh, the preparatory material before. But I think it—it it sort of it, there's some sort of integrity and respect for the for, for the guest. Um, and you do this as well. I know you kind of you you put together a lot of always a handful of thoughtful paragraphs, which is sort of set, setting the context. But what I wanted to do then with the newsletter originally was to pick out a small number of provocative ideas, sometimes half baked. Um, uh, things that had occurred to me during my reading in the previous week or two, or maybe some vignettes which preview um, or review uh, my podcast and just give a bit more kind of flesh uh, on the bones. And then also it was a sort of a community engagement piece because as I've done, as I mentioned to you before, I've opened the platform up now for guest contributions and I've had a number of those um, over the last few months. Uh, so I'm keen to use it, to offer it up if you like to other people interested in the area Um uh, to write pieces uh, uh, for me. So it's all a bit of experimentation, but it's just really selfishly, it's about giving me an opportunity uh, to write and scribble. And I also find, you find this, Christian, but particularly with writing, I mean, there's also the preparation for the pods, of course, but particularly the process of writing, it's slower, it's more thoughtful, it's more considered, at least it is for me. And you know, I can find myself, I can spend a whole day putting together, a, you know, a, th- a, th- a thousand words. But, you know, you really learn a lot from it because if you do it properly, you know, you review and you draft and you chisel uh, and you improve it, you refine it uh, and you really kind of learn, you can, you can, you can, you can learn a lot. You know, you take yourself off in different directions. You go and read other articles. You really, it's, 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 it's very mind stretching. I agree completely. And I, I find it really interesting when I, when I can read transcripts of this show or listen to it, you actually realize how in our, you know, inarticulate we, we often are. We start sentences 
and then jump somewhere else, lots of umming, ahhing. And the written word, you know, if you did that, you, you would, you, you sort of people wouldn't bother reading it. It doesn't flow nicely. And spoken conversation, very, very different to, to the written word. And I think that for me has been a really fascinating piece because that's not to say that the spoken isn't good communication and it can be very effective. And you can actually say some very illiterate things that come, uh, yeah, there's a certain former president of the US, right? For example, who, who, or even the current prime minister of the UK, who are not, if you literally wrote down what they said, it's rambling nonsense, but it seems to resonate with people on a human level. Um, the written, the written skill is very, very different. And you'll write one, I think the mouth allows one to, I'm going to mix metaphors now, but shoot from the hip. Whereas writing requires much more discipline and much more. more and so, so I think sort of one of them, one of them feels a bit like sort of, uh, what, what one's, I'd say one is sort of hacking, hacking around in the undergrowth. The other one is sort of cultivating bonsai trees. Exactly. And by the way, therefore, both of those disciplines are extremely pleasurable. There's something fun uh, and, and relaxed about being able to have free-flowing uh, audio uh, co conversations and being a little less worried about where it may take you. I also love the discipline of sculpting something and really going, I mean, talking of the political philosophy of, of, of less is more in terms of, you know, what, there was a, the analysis of Trump's vocabulary saying, you know, most of his speeches were made up of about 12 words or whatever it may be. And, you know, Boris definitely stole something of that uh, style with a small s. Um, uh, you know, by the way, for those people listening who are interested in online writing, one of the guys that I read and listened to, which gave me a lot of good insight, is a guy called David Perel, which maybe we can add that into the, mm -hmm. into the show notes. Because I think, you know, I talk to friends who are interested in their own sort of subjects, whether it's sort of philately or whatever it may be, or cutlery collecting or, you know, all sorts of things. I mean, the, the beauty of the internet is that there's a space for everyone, whatever you're interested in. And I think one of the challenges for any new writer or indeed any podcast maker, it's as you say, it's finding the voice, but it's also overcoming this instinctive imposter syndrome. You know, we, we question far too much what our real value uh, is and what we have to add on a particular subject. Um, I mean, imposter syndrome, I think, is a reflection of intelligence and thought. Uh, um and I think it's a it's 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 a positive reflection on on sort of good quality right brain hemisphere uh, self doubt and introspection. Whereas I think those, uh, e.g., responsible for financial crashes, as one sort of example, tend to be the sort of people who are very more sort of left brain narrow beam uh, focus, overconfident. Um, I think a bit of self doubt is good, but obviously too much holds one back from actually doing anything. So anyone who's interested in expressing their interests, I think you know the answer is just you 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 can have a go. Yeah, and I think it's as you say, it's it's, it's quite extraordinary, and this comes back to I think how we we view the world is whenever whenever I, I take up a new hobby or I discover something new or something, and I'm diving into a rabbit hole. There are a ton of things I, you know, oh my God, I didn't realize all of these things had gone in. And I'm, I'm fascinated as I, as I explore what's going on is that we're, we're lucky in some respects that we have people that have dug into to, to details for us that allows our world to operate. I'm always straight, you know, you go, you go to the airport. I don't have to go, and, they wouldn't let me do this, but I don't have to go and check the aircraft, okay, because someone's maintained it. I'll assume that someone's in the air traffic control tower keeping an eye on things. Somebody else has worked out exactly what size of plane. Uh, they can put in the sky and how much fuel you need, all those sorts of things. Ditto, if I go to the supermarket, I, the, the, I'm not going to get poisoned. And so there are so many of these, and I think you know that that applies to sort of thing, things that we, we do, but there are also sort of interests and experiences. And I love diving into those. And I think, but you know, back for me, part of the curiosity piece is 
asking questions and, and being able to dive into rabbit holes and find that there's people hanging out in those rabbit holes who do nothing but that. And that I, I find tremendously, I mean, worrying in some cases when you see what some of those rabbit holes are, but equally joyful Very that, much so. that, that we have this, we, that there are people out there doing this and there's somebody thinking about this topic and trying things and always makes me smile when I look at things like beer. You know, so there's some monks that have toiled away centuries ago, nothing else to do, but let's experiment, who've made themselves ill, who have... Um, you know, some of them will have died in the quest of making higher quality alcohol. And we've got that nowadays and can take it for granted. And I think all of this stuff points, and your your whole curious approach, I think, point, points towards exactly those things is sort of the, the human endeavor. I mean, it's, it's marvelous when we think about it. Yeah, I, mean, look, I think, you know, the mantra is, you know, don't be boring, be interested in something. But you're right, it is joyful. The more niche uh, d- uh, the discovery of an interest is in someone, there is something particularly wonderful about you know, finding someone who is fascinated and also an expert on something that you know nothing about and sort of just sort of escaping down those rabbit holes. Um, it's one of the sort of the joy, the, the joys of, uh, of, of, of meet, meeting other people and also uh, the privilege that we have of having a platform of being in to invite these guests on. And when I think about the breadth of the guests that I have, and I think similarly, you, I think that's, that, that, that's, that's sort of the luxury uh, that we have that you sort of sit back and go, wow, anyone basically is accessible. I mean, I actually, funnily enough, for some bizarre reason, Barack Obama follows me on Twitter, but I mean, I'm not the only one by any means, although a few of my friends are going, you know, Obama follows you. And I'm very sort of chilled out about it. I don't want to say how it happened, but, um, and of course, because he follows <laughs> don't talk me, about that. I don't, I don't want to talk about, I don't want to talk about me and Barack, but, um, of course, uh, now that Barack uh, follows me, um, I can DM him on Twitter. So, of course, I did invite him to the podcast there, Mr. President, uh, you know, because I mean, that's the beauty of the Internet. It's totally uh, democratic. Um, of course, I can't divulge the dialogue that we've had since, but uh, I've, I've had to push him back. But watch out. Watch, keep back. listening to the show. Yeah, right? keep listening to the show. Uh, we're talking ex-presidents to come. But I've got I've got a backlog, so I've had to, I've had to push right, him he's back. He's going to have to wait. Right? He, will, he will have to wait. I keep telling him, can you stop Pestering me, <laughs> infuriating. Enough now. Enough, right? <laughs> right. But I tell you, I tell you, what I think is really funny is is this sort of idea that if you if you were to get in touch with some of these people and just go, can I have an hour's worth of chat? You would get ignored. Uh, you know, uh, the sort of you, you or, or told to piss off or worth it, right? If you say, would you like to appear on my podcast, which is the same thing, right? you get a magically different response in many cases. Not always, by any stretch of the imagination. And I, I do find it funny that. The sort of, and I guess you must have this as well. There, there are people you approach that you think are going to be dead certain, say yes, and they don't. And there's other people where you think, well, I'll give this a go, right? See what happens. And astonishingly, they say yes. And there's everything in between. Absolutely. And by the way, most people are susceptible to flattery. So as you say, if you articulate the question in the right way, more often than not, uh, people will respond. What what sometimes holds one back is, 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 is are the gatekeepers, of course. So where you're dealing with people's agents uh, or PR people or whatever, then that always sort of tends to be, uh, uh, can be can be a bit of a uh, a blocker, but uh, yeah, look, I mean, I mean, it remind me, Tim Ferriss wrote this book which propelled him, uh, which uh, it's not lessons for leaders, or it's a book basically in which he identified a bunch of people that he really kind of was in, into and interested in, big business ne- names. He put together a list of I think his eleven favorite questions which he'd refined and got advice on, and then he threw those questions at all these people he was interested in, saying, "Look, choose the three or four that you're most interested in and give me some answers." Put it into a book. And, uh, and, 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 the, and there you go. But I think his premise was, look, you know, if you don't ask, you don't get more often than not, if you say that you're writing a book or, you know, you're doing a podcast series and you just absolutely love to have your thoughts on it, 
uh, people people tend to be reasonably kind more often than not. So we've talked about what's happening in the moment. Where where where, where do you go from here? And I recognise, given what we've talked about, that uh, slightly silly question on the basis you won't fully know. But what's your current sort of thinking? I'll just uh, dig out my strategy document and just bear with me one second. <laughs> Pull it out of the uh, bin. There, that's yes, where there, it's sitting, there, right? there it is. Uh, I mean, my strategy is finding finding the time uh, to get doing. I take it takes up. You know, it's 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 an it's an enormous pleasure. I'm just sort of I, I'm ferreting around trying to find interest. I mean. For example, I'll give you a few people on my short list. I mean, this is not a strategy, but someone who I'm quite keen on interviewing is Alistair Campbell, actually. Um, I was never sort of a huge fan of his when he was at the political uh, heart, heart of things, but I do so find So this was it, Tony Blair's... Tony Blair's spin doctor in chief. Right. Um, I know, I think I think he, I think he talks a lot of sense. He sort of stands up against political bullshit, um, certainly against Boris Johnson right now. Um, and I'm quite interested in... in Sort of social sort of psychology around politics. I've done a couple of interviews uh, in the, on that on that subject. I interviewed Times journalist Danny Finkelstein, who is again not a professional, but I mean is a very high quality amateur social psychologist. And you know, we and I want to do more of this. But I mean, we talked about you know, you talk about questions of power and influence and ambition and what it means having skin in the game in the political decisions that you make. Um, how we understand things like the status quo bias uh, in terms of how you make policy as a politician, which is to say that most of us, as in voters, punters, rather like the way things are. We don't like too much kind of radical change. In other words, it goes back to that point about certainty. We prefer less change. And so actually the fewer radical programs uh, that are put forward by politicians is kind of better, all despite that a lot of politicians think they need to make their name uh, by coming up with kind of radical ideas. It's uh, those sorts of questions, understanding how polling and voting works, that old, I think, apocryphal uh, David Ogilvy uh, quotation, people don't think how they feel, they don't say what they think, they don't do what they say, and so on. So it's those sorts of questions. I'm quite keen to do a bit more on politics. I'm quite keen to do a bit more on sport. I've got a short list of people on the sporting fraternity who I've got uh, lined up. And then actually what I enjoy, and this is not an, not an excuse for sort of having no precise strategy, but as you all know, one of the great ways uh, of building one's guest list is you ask the uh, last person you talk to for a referral. And that's the, sort of the great fun of it, because you just sort of don't know what's going to come next. And if that's perhaps an excuse for saying, I don't know what I'm doing, uh, then, <laughs> then but I so think that's, be it. that's entirely in keeping with what we talked about, you know, curiosity. And so I think if you if you were to sort of chart a particular course, you would miss opportunities and and I sometimes find myself reading something and it just sort of sparks and I've I got, I've got to try and get them on because that's just interesting yeah. and let's see what and, and it may be something that maybe maybe a return to a theme I've tackled before it may be something that's completely left field but for some reason it's got me and how do you make the show different well the answer is you 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 make it authentic to yourself and don't necessarily follow a game plan because that's replicable by other people yeah exactly i think there's a there's a there's a, there's a balance right i mean you touched on this about kind of crossover learning i mean i also have this fascination of trying to connect the dots across different it's about different different uh industries or different scientific disciplines which in the end is all about trying to enhance our understanding of ourselves actually there's a writer you may or may not have heard of who I become quite fascinated with lately, I think about the subject of connecting the dots and understanding ourselves, a guy called Dr. Ian McGilchrist, um, who writes uh, amazingly uh, about understanding ourselves and our existence and our point. Um, he's a polymath of the greatest uh, intelligence philosopher, psychiatrist, writer. He wrote a book 
uh, about 10 or so years ago called the master and his emissary, which is an allegory for the way in which the different uh, brain hemispheres function, the master referring to the right uh, hemisphere, hemisphere referring to the left. He wrote then a book in November last year published called The Matter With Things, which is about the length of the Bible. Um, and what that's trying to do is building on the master and his emissary, but it's trying to get to the heart of our existence and its meaning, very uh, heavy, heavy going topics. But he sets up this argument um, and I'm just giving a little promo for him if people are interested in you know, because actually what I found interesting as a, as a side note is that outside of the kind of the, the the BS theories and the principles, starting to read around how the brain actually works contributes hugely to one's understanding of all of, of all this stuff. Um, and so what McGilchrist is talking about in the matter with things is um, when he's talking about the contributions and the interaction between our two brain hemispheres at, at the start. So in simple terms, what he's saying is that the left brain hemisphere is very mechanistic it's black or white in understanding it's very dogmatic very narrow beam focus and if you're thinking in evolutionary language um you'd be talking about its purpose around being for grasping and manipulating things about hunting your hunting your prey whereas basically the right brain is more about understanding context nuance subtlety color so whereas the left is more monochrome uh, the right is more multicolor. i mean we, we i think you you touched this Early, earlier on when we were talking about sort of uh, AI and uh, data uh, obsession and the kind of balance between that um, and creativity and and, and imagination. Um, but what McGilchrist is trying to sort of counter is that our world today is dominate, far too dominated by this sort of blunt, abstracted uh, left brain thinking. And there are very few voices left in the world, and this is perhaps an exaggeration, but few voices left in the world which are rather which are reasonable, which are not consumed with rage and hatred and rather the, you know, we we tend to take things out of context, uh, which have understanding only in a very reductionist, abstracted way. This goes back to this point about obsession with obsession with machines, uh, abstraction, decontextualization, disembodiment, whereas actually we need this mixture of science, imagination, creativity, and reason um, uh, for our for our long term survival. Anyway, some very big thoughts as we kind of. No, <laughs> I love that. It, it, it reminds me. I read, I read somewhere somebody somebody said, "Look, what we, we'll need science to get us through this, i.e., the pandemic." Yeah. And we'll need the arts and culture to make it worth living afterwards. Absolutely. It's the balance. I mean, the idea that you have sort of philosophers on, on one side and scientists on the other arguing with each other doesn't make, doesn't make any sense. Uh, you, 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 need, you need it all in the pot. Beautiful way to round us up. So just tell people, again, links to all of this stuff in the show. These show notes are going to be massive this time around, which is a big compliment to you and where you've taken us. But um, tell people, Daniel, what, where, where they can find the show and remind them what it's called in the newsletter. Right. So get a pen, everyone. <laughs> get ready. <laughs> Write this down. So uh, a number of ways that you can find uh, the pod uh, archives, all the latest episodes, and indeed my articles. Uh, if you go to a load of bs.substack.com, uh, you can subscribe there. You can, of course, also search for a load of BS in Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I've said that before. Um, and of course, do subscribe, follow, leave me a, you know, leave me, well, you can leave me a four, four star review, I'll take, but five is even better. Um, <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Daniel S. J. Ross. Um, and I think that, I think that's fair enough. I think that, 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 that'll that's, give, give that's you a chance. people more than enough. More hooks. than enough. There we go. Um, well, look, I knew this was going to be a fascinating. I had no clue where we were going to end up. We ended up in some spaces I thought we would, and some spaces I absolutely didn't. Which is the whole joy of one talking to you and secondly listening to your output. So I want to say, on behalf of uh, as 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 a listener and fan of yours, I want to say thank you for the work that you do because I know how much effort goes into these things, and I love uh, somebody. Somebody once said to me, "There's someone rivaling your point." In fact, let's name them. Gerald Ashley said Gerald. to me. 
he said, you know, the, the, his, his, there's a rival for your podcasting. I didn't quite say crown, but he sort of implied it. And I, I take the opposite view. My view is if there's high quality people out there, a rising tide lifts all boats. And your boat is absolutely one that I want to keep lifting. So thank Aww. you for what you're doing. Keeps people like me on my toes as well, because I sort of watch what you do with, with interest, curiosity, and, and a huge amount of, of personal benefit from it. So thank you for that. Thank you for being an amazing guest. And thank you as ever for just being a supreme pleasure to talk to. Oh, Christian, thank you. And let me say also, by the way, to back to, to Gerald. Of course, Gerald has just uh, started his own podcast, which we'll, 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 we'll give a little uh, nudge nudge to with Mark Ross. I think we also both know talking politics, current affairs and all sorts of other bits and pieces. So uh, do tune in to that. And I need to say, I love, I love listening to your stuff as well. So thank you for inviting me. It has been a huge pleasure and what a wonderful way to start the week. So we've thank broken you. all the podcasting rules here by basically <laughs> inviting fellow podcasters onto each other's shows and doing this but it's been an absolute pleasure thank you thank you so that's it for this special episode of the human risk podcast my enormous thanks to daniel for appearing and to you for listening to find out more about a load of bs the podcast and the newsletter have a look in the show notes there are links to both of those there if this is your first time listening to the human risk podcast welcome you can subscribe wherever you get your quality audio content. It's available on all of the major podcasting platforms. To find out more about human risk and the work that I do with my clients to help them mitigate theirs, visit human-risk.com. I'll be back with another episode of this show very soon. But in the meantime, stay safe, avoid the wrong kind of BS, and thanks for listening.